It's out with the old and in with the new for the RAF. The F-35s are deployment ready and the tornadoes prepare to retire. Should they stay or should they go? What will the US do about Syria? The Royal Engineers who prevented rape in South Sudan. And as the army celebrates Captain Louis Rudd's achievements, what's the point of adventurous training? Britain has nine F-35 Lightning jets ready for operations around the world. The Defence Secretary made the announcement at RAF Marham earlier. Gavin Williamson also announced the Typhoon fleet has been upgraded. Claire Sadler spoke to the Defence Secretary. Well, this is incredibly important, actually, to have the first nine combat F-35s ready. Uh, this is the most advanced jet fighter anywhere in the world, and it goes to show that Britain is ready to counter any threats that come about, but also the investment that we're making in Typhoon, making, expanding its range of capabilities, making sure that we're able to continue to have the versatility to deal with all threats. As I understand, it was essential to have those upgrades so the Typhoon can operate with the f 35. What, what uh, has been done to it? How has it been operated? Well, this is a half billion pound investment that we've made, making sure that it's able to take the uh, Storm Shadow cruise missile, uh, Brimstone and Meteor missiles, all of these which will be able to have an amazing effect in terms of expanding its capabilities, but also continuing to take our fight to the enemies and people who pose a threat to Britain. And we know we've got the uh, end coming for the tornado. It's been, as you say, essential over Syria and Iraq. Are we going to see the F-35 there as well? Are we going to be seeing both uh, Reaper and the Typhoon uh, driving forward the operations uh, over uh, Iraq and Syria? And we don't currently have plans to deploy the F-35. That was the Defence Secretary. Well, I'm joined now by aviation expert Paul Beaver and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Paul Beaver, what will we use the F-35s for? I understand you're at RAF Marham right now. I'm actually yes, in, in uh, RAF Marham, and it's been a, a really interesting day because there's a large uh, uh, amount of activity, as you can imagine, not only if we had Secretary of State with Chief of the Air Staff and a whole bunch of other dignitaries, um, looking actually at, at the future, as it were. So you've, you've got um, the, the future which goes from uh, the, uh, the Tempest uh, project, which for 2040, to the F-35, to the Typhoon upgrade, um, and to the Tornado. You've, we've seen all of those um, laid out, and Secretary of State was able to see them all. So it's been quite an exciting day. It's also quite emotional, of course, because 39 years they've had tornadoes. Um, and now that that capability is, is disappearing. Mm, where are they going? Do you know? Uh, well, they, there are only 22 aircraft left now, um, and uh, they are they're destined for museums. They're being reduced um, into spares um, and, to, um, and to other, um, uh, uh, basically other uses. But they, the aircraft are not being sold to anybody. They, they've done their job. They don't need to go anywhere else. Mm, tell us a bit more about the F-35s then. What do you think their first operational deployment will be and what will they be used for? Well, the, the nine F-35s that the initial operating capability has been declared today means that they could go not on the ship but can go from, from RAF Marham to do something should they be required. But more than anything, this is a statement saying that this aircraft, which can carry 
a range of, of missiles and bombs is, is ready. The problem they've got now is working out how they support it, um, and, and both in the field, um, on the ship, uh, and, and at the well-found air bases. There's a lot of work still to be done. But I think they, what they wanted to do was ensure that they had that capability already uh, in place. How they're supported, so they, you say. Sorry to interrupt. How they're supported. A lot of work to be done. What does need to be done, Paul? A lot of work to be done. There's, there's a lot of work to work out how the best way of supporting them. And by that, I mean where the maintenance regimes are and all of that. Working with the Americans, we'll be working with the Australians, um, with Denmark, with Norway, all of those countries on, on all of those capabilities. Christopher Lee is here um, in the studio. Paul, this is, this is a long-term thing. It began some time ago. People have gradually been operating, uh, learning how to operate with aircraft. Some people have actually gone out of their of, the, of their old service careers and still haven't seen, been operating in, 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 action, in an action way. Um, we've got to look at it in these terms. The gr- yeah. no, air, no aircraft is ever introduced uh, ready to go. Uh, you know, when the Secretary of State says, well, uh, we'll be operating around the world, not with nine aircraft, he won't. And this is, this is not a criticism, it's just putting it in perspective. To operate a squadron even, you've got to have, uh, you know, the, the job of the RAF is to keep the, keep, the, keep the F-35s flying. And the people that do that, not pilots, but they're the, sort of the techies. And so you've got to build on that. You've got to build it and say, I've got it ready for the next 15, 20 years. When you think about the, the, sort, of the sort of the tornado going out after 39 years, that's how we start have to start thinking about the F-35. How will we be operating it? Where will we be operating? When you say, well, you know, what's his first job going to be? don't know. That's the whole point of having an aeroplane. Well, it's a deterrent capability, isn't it? You can never be sure what the deterrent uh, um, would have to be used for. You hope nothing. You hope the deterrents will be the deterrents. Um, and that, that it won't. But you're right. I mean, the, the aircraft can only operate from Marham at the moment. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done, both by the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, of course, getting the ship ready. They've had very successful um, ship trials. So there's a feeling of optimism that the aeroplane is on its way, but it will probably stay in service for as long as the carriers. Right. Well, that's to 2060. Mm. So, you know, this is a long-term investment for the country and for the armed forces. And on that note, we'll leave it. Paul Beaver, thank you. Still to come, how British soldiers stopped the repeated rape of women in South Sudan and remembering Lord Ashdown. The US's shifting statements on when American troops will draw down from Syria has been causing a lot of aggro. This is what started it just before Christmas. We've been fighting for a long time in Syria. I've been president for almost two years and we've really stepped it up. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land and now it's time for our troops to come back home. Well, since that, Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defence, is out. He resigned. Trump said he had to go. And IS isn't, in fact, defeated, and American troops will stay on, at least for now. Well, Paul Rogers is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Good to speak to you today, Paul. Was it wishful thinking, then, by the American president? Uh, not so much wishful thinking, it's just very much question shooting from the hip. I mean, he does this repeatedly. It's almost like producing foreign defence and security policy by tweet. And, of course, it causes great consternation. And uh, Mr Bolton has been scurrying around the Middle East trying to repair the damage. And Trump himself has backtracked quite considerably. Uh, so we simply don't really know where we are. The whole thing is complicated because we had the Turkish foreign minister just well, reported by AFP just five or six hours ago, saying 
saying that if the Americas didn't withdraw, uh, the Turks would be prepared to go in with force against this, the Syrian Kurdish forces who've been backed by the Americans, but of course regarded by the Turks as almost a sort of an offshoot of their own um, essentially Kurdish separatists who the Turks regard as terrorists. OK, um, as you say, Turkey furious. Do you think they really are going to go in and start attacking the Syrian Kurds? I think it is unlikely in the short term, but for the Americans the real worry is that Bolton's trip to Turkey has clearly ended very badly. And uh, in a way, the Turks are putting pressure on the United States. But at the same time, of course, Turkey ho hosts a huge American air base. So it's not as though the sort of the two states are at complete loggerheads. It's much more a case of the, t the Turks being absolutely intent on ensuring that there isn't any kind of security vacuum formed in Syria, one which aids the, the Kurds, the Syrian Kurds, of whom uh, the Turks are extremely chary. Christopher Lee, how much does any of this matter for Britain's military mission and the strategy on Syria? I think it matters quite a lot because it matters over uh, uh, the whole area of the Middle East. Everything is linked. Nothing stands by itself in, in the Middle East. I mean, one of the most important things as far as the American State Department will, th will, 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 will have heard in the last sort of 48 hours is probably from the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who says there has to be vigorous efforts, and that's what he calls them, to combat what he calls the ongoing terrorist threat and therefore, it is not just America, have you beaten up on the uh, on ISIS? It's not the United Kingdom, what are you doing on this? And uh, we are doing quite a lot. Special forces were photographed just, just two weeks ago in, in Syria. It is a question, it is a European thing, because they have to be the guarantors of any efforts to bring talks, for example, together. But most of all, it is the Middle East themselves trying to sort out a problem which affects them all. I mean, because you're IS, you affect people in, in Egypt, mm. as, as, as President Sisi has said. Paul Rogers, um, the US National Security Advisor John Bolton you spoke about, he said this week in this, this U-turn or clarification that any remnants of IS had to be defeated before any withdrawal. Is, is that possible? Can you defeat IS? No, you can't. They've gone underground. And the big worry, which we've not talked about, is the state of affairs in Iraq. And the, the really some very interesting reports coming there, which suggested that you know, the government in Iraq is intent on maintaining the, the support of the Shia groups. And the Sunnis really are getting a very hard deal. And the likelihood is that they will tend to support what isn't the remnant of ISIS. It's basically gone back underground. And if we're concerned about the development of ISIS in Syria in any kind of vacuum, the much greater concern actually has to be in Iraq. But Chris, I would absolutely agree with this right. This is a thing right across the region. The fundamental thing is, uh, for Mr. Trump to say that ISIS is defeated, is frankly and bluntly wrong. It has not been defeated. It's transforming into something else. I tell you, there's another side of this, and that is when we can turn around and say, oh, Mr. Trump just tweets and says things, you know, off the hip, and we can dismiss it as that. But we had, for example, and just this morning, Mike Pompeo, who is the United States Secretary of State, the sort of the foreign, the foreign secretary, he was saying that the United States under President Trump will remain, I quote here, a steadfast partner in the region with Egypt and others. Now, when they hear him say that, and then they hear the president saying, right, we're pulling out of Syria, etc., mm. they don't believe him. 
They cannot accept that President Trump is going to be a, a, a steadfast person, and that's very difficult. Paul, Paul Rogers, just briefly, uh, Donald Trump has always been against sending American troops to war. He wants to get them home as soon as possible. Can you see any circumstances in the future in which he would deploy them and deploy them with NATO? I think that could happen. The things are so uncertain at present. You get a major successful attack in the domestic United States and everything will change. He is so uh, unpredictable that I wouldn't like to make any predictions in this respect. All right, Professor Paul Rogers, wise words there. Now, British soldiers have intervened to stop a group of women being raped by armed men in South Sudan. The soldiers are in the country as UN peacekeepers, where the civil war there has left 400,000 people dead and 4 million displaced. Christina Lamb is the Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent and told me what happened. Well, South Sudan has been, over the last five years, through uh, really one of the most brutal wars going on on Earth. 400,000 people have been killed and 4 million people displaced. And amongst all that violence has been really horrendous sexual violence, lots of rape, gang rape of women. And because so many people have been displaced and are in uh, far away places, the women are having to walk a long way to get um, firewood and get food for their families. And so there was this one particular stretch of road where in just 10 days in November, 125 women were picked up as they were walking to go to an AIDS distribution and all taken off the road and raped over and over again and beaten. How did the British military become aware of this and what did they do exactly? So actually, South Sudan is Britain's biggest peacekeeping mission. There's 300 uh, British soldiers working as part of the, the UN peacekeeping mission. And it's actually the biggest UN peacekeeping mission anywhere on Earth. And it has been one of the most dangerous ones. There's been a number of soldiers have been killed. And so there are um, around 300 British soldiers stationed in a place in the north called Bentu, and it was then to where the aid distribution was taking place that these women were walking to. And just to give you some idea, I mean, they were walking 38 miles there and back to pick up this food for their families. And so the, the British heard about the this happening. And most of the British troops are actually engineers. So they realised that... You know, whereas most people would just be horrified at what happened, but you couldn't do much about it. Actually, the reason really that the women were so vulnerable was because there was no way for the trucks to get along the road and deliver the aid nearer to them. So the um, British engineers were actually deployed to then go and rebuild or uh, widen the road to make it possible for the trucks so that the women wouldn't have to walk such a long way. And this was all at the initiative of the commanding officer who was a British woman. Do you think that made any difference that it was a woman? Well, I think anybody, men or women, would be horrified at, at what happened. But, um, you know, obviously she felt really... Um, shocked at what happened and you know it's a country as I said where terrible things have been going on for a number of years but this was you know such a big group of women in a 
small space of time in one stretch of road. And as she said, you know, these were women that were, could be your grandchildren that aged just eight up to women that could be grandmothers that were 80. So she um, sent some of her engineers to go and um, work on widening this road and clearing away the vegetation to which the um, soldiers or militia had hidden in. Mm. You were in the country because the Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson was visiting the mission there in South Sudan and you met he met Royal Engineers. He wants the British military to take the lead on the issue. What do you make of that? What does he mean exactly? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because it's an issue I personally feel very strongly about because as a, I've been a war correspondent for 30 years. We often, many of my colleagues are male and tend to focus much more on sort of bang bang, the fighting, and not so much on the people trying to get on with their lives behind the lines. And because those people are mostly women and they are trying to feed and protect and shelter their children in often really hellish circumstances so it's something I feel very strongly about and I always Mm. have tried to focus much more on and in recent years I have seen more brutality against women in war than any time in my career so whether it's the Yazidi women the girls taken by Boko Haram in Nigeria uh, the Rohingya one after another where uh, rape is being used as a weapon of war and um, little is done about it. You know, people often just say, oh, well, these things happen in war. It's not true. These things don't have to happen in war. So the fact that the Defence Secretary is taking the initiative on this, I think, is a really important and good thing. And, uh, you know, and it's not just about here was a practical example where the British troops have done something that has made the road much safer for women mm. and hopefully um, will mean that women will not be raped in that area. But obviously that's a small thing that is happening all over the country. But they're not just doing that. It's also training troops in different countries, training peacekeepers to be aware of the issue and you know it's not acceptable and something has to be done about it yes and christina lamb um, these were some fairly simple practical measures which made a big difference to the women who are being attacked and yet it is more than four years since angelina jolie and william haig had this big summit in london to end sexual violence in war obviously it's not having the right kind of impact is it well i think what they did was put the issue on the international agenda and make people more aware of it happening and that it's a security issue for everybody and that you know it isn't something that we should just say oh well rape has always happened in war and it's inevitable in the chaos of war and you know so they they brought it to center stage made people focus on it and think about what can be done preventive measures but yes the fact is it hasn't stopped it happening as i just said to you you know in those last four years i've probably seen worse uh, atrocities against women than any time previously in my reporting. Um, and the real issue is impunity. And at, at the moment, far too often it's the women themselves, the victims who are being stigmatized afterwards, and not the, the people who have actually carried out the crime. And so that is what really has to change. But, you know, to, what the British 
military and Gavin Williamson's initiative of trying to make people aware of this in that it should be not a sort of side issue but actually part of the main training of military and peacekeepers to be aware to um, you know act if anything like this is happening is I think you know very laudable and important and you know, one of the problems I think is you know that peacekeepers are overwhelmingly male I think the I was asking it in Saturday that the it's more than 96 percent of the 14,000 UN peacekeepers there are male and <laughs> So that also needs to change. I think having more women, like Major Lambert, the British um, commander there in Ventu, you know, is, um, makes a difference. The Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent, Christina Lamb. Captain Louis Rudd, the first Briton and the second person in the world to walk solo across Antarctica, has returned home. The army officer spent 56 days trekking over the frozen continent. The 49-year-old completed the 925-mile journey in honour of his friend, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Worsley, who died trying to do the same thing two years ago. Here he is telling Sean Grezchek about the most dangerous time. It was a really difficult season uh, down in Antarctica. Uh, it's been recognised, uh, you know, probably one of the, the worst seasons for, you know, uh, poor visibility, snowfall and deep soft snow that, you know, uh, many of the polar guys have seen down there for a long time. Uh, so I, def- I picked the wrong year to attempt that journey, you know, and, and sort of six of the soloists, you know, that were just trying to do half of what I was doing to reach the pole, you know, pulled out and had to abort their expeditions. Um, uh, yeah, so there was a time, you know, when I was going through this really deep, soft snow, and I think I'd been out, you know, hauling for six or seven hours, uh, you know, sort of halfway through the day, and I thought, oh, I'll just check my mileage to see how far I'd gone. I'd gone like two nautical miles, you know, and I thought, wow, you know, that, that's so slow, and uh, I just, you know, I sat in the tent calculating, thinking, right, yeah, I don't know if I've now got the food and resources to complete this journey, so... So there's some really worrying times where I thought, actually, I'm not, I'm not going to pull this off. You know, uh, I'm going to run out of time and food uh, to do it. Uh, and then sort of, dang, yeah, lots of sort of quite dangerous points. You know, solo is just, you know, something goes wrong. You haven't got other team members, you know, that you can, you know, use for assistance and stuff. And there was a time I dropped, you know, again, because of the soft snow. Uh, I woke up one morning, it had been snowing all night. I couldn't move my polk. Uh, literally, I couldn't drag it forward. It was so heavy and just sinking in the snow. So I took out half of my gear and my tent and my sleeping bag, left it behind, uh, and then I ferried forward half the load, you know, the food and stuff. And it was great visibility when I went forward. And I went forward a few miles, dropped off the food, turned around to go back then and recover my tent and sleeping bag. And in the meantime, the weather had completely deteriorated. Visibility was down to 10 metres, so I couldn't see my ski tracks anymore to backtrack. And, you know, and I had a tense couple of hours relocating, you know, my tent and sleeping bag. And if I hadn't have found them, then, you know, best case, it was ended expedition, worst case, it, a life-threatening situation, so it's quite risky. Well, Captain Rudd is a serving army officer and endeavours like this fall under the Army's Adventurous Training Group. Well, let's talk to Colonel Neil Wilson, who is commander of the Adventurous Training Group. Good to speak to you today. He is a serving soldier. How does all that work? Um, well, he, he's doing the, uh, the expedition. He's done it on duty. Uh, he's done it on service time. Uh, because it has, uh, it, it's very applicable to our operational role, uh, and everything he's been doing there is aimed at uh, in, increasing his personal uh, mental resilience. In this case, it is unusual that he's done this as a single uh, singleton, but that was very much what the challenge was. Normally, our adventurous training 
um, expeditions are, are very much uh, a teamwork um, uh, um, a challenge. And so we obviously we, we incorporate as many people in them as we possibly can. Um, and so it, it, everything they do um, enhances um, mental and physical robustness, teamwork, communications, um, all the things we need to uh, improve or work on uh, to in increase our operational capability. And just how does it fit into the training in the Army? How important is it? Oh, well, adventurous training is just another aspect of, of overall military training. It's mandated. It, it's uh, another part of uh, everything we do uh, in our, our yearly cycle. Uh, everybody should participate in some form of adventurous training. Uh, as I say, it, it enhances their, uh, their uh, leadership and their mental uh, robustness and their physical robustness. And so it's, it's vital. It's very, very important indeed. And you, if you speak to uh, anybody who's been in operations, a lot of them will tell you uh, that actually it was their adventurous training as much as anything else, as, as much as their specific mission training, uh, which they fell back on when, when times became particularly tough. And just how much of a pull can it be for recruitment? Uh, definitely. Uh, adventurous training is, it has great side benefits of recruitment and retention, um, which we try to exploit uh, our achievements through adventurous training um, to get the message out there to potential recruits. Uh, clearly, we don't need to do that internally quite so much because people who are participating uh, know the value of it themselves. And so the retention side is almost a given, but the, uh, the recruitment is an area we need to work on. Do you know, uh, Colonel, we live in a world, don't we, of superlatives. So what is the next... Uh, yeah. Where do you go from here? Yes, <laughs> I, I, I agree. Uh, you go there and back. Uh, I, I, I'm not too sure, but you're, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's trying to challenge ourselves uh, to the next stage, isn't it? And there'll be people out there right now thinking about it. OK, um, I, I've missed my chance to become the first person to, to walk unaided, unassisted, alone across the Antarctic continent. Um, what is the next challenge? Um, I, personally, I, I don't know, but there'll be people out there looking at it and thinking about it right now. And what kind of activities are, are there on offer at the moment? And are they protected? They're not going to be coming under any efficiency savings, are they? Um, to answer the second question first, no, they're not. Uh, if anything, we're enhancing our adventurous training uh, capabilities. So that's all good news. Uh, and, and the activities, the core activities that we participate in um, are, from an army perspective, they're, they're caving, uh, kayaking, canoeing, mountaineering, um, skiing, uh, both um, cross-country and ski touring um, and mountain biking. Uh, and then in addition to that, there's, there's gliding and parachuting and paragliding, mm. um, offshore sailing and sub-aqua diving. Oh, I'm, I'm out of breath already just listening to that. It's been good to talk to you. <laughs> Colonel Neil Wilson, thank you so much for your time today. The funeral has taken place today of Paddy Ashdown, who died shortly before Christmas. He was 77. Lord Ashdown served as a Royal Marine, joining straight from school. He saw action as a commando in Kuwait, Borneo, Hong Kong and Northern Ireland. After leaving the military, he led the Liberal Democrats for 11 years from 1988. In 2002, he went on to become the United Nations High Representative for Bosnia, a post he held for just four years, but continued to take a close interest in developments in the region for the rest of his life. He was a regular guest on this programme, always a straight talker. Here he is speaking about a decision to cut the number of Royal Marines back in April 2017. First of all, this was a stupid decision to start with. It ends up as a stupid decision. It plays fast and loose with the defence of the nation. But in the past, all previous defence secretaries, if they had to cut, and you have to from time to time, would always start with the tail, with the administrative tail. 
And instead of which, our defence secretary, in this most dangerous age, is starting with the frontline troops, the elite. I suspect this is serious. I think this really is a restructuring. I know there are naval warships which are being forced to lie alongside keys because they don't have the sailors to man them. I know that there are naval uh, ships that are being put into the reserve fleet early to make way for these um, these carriers who many, many defence analysts regard as future floating white elephants. Um, but I think uh, all of that is very regrettable. We live in hard times, difficult times, but they're also dangerous times. The late Lord Ashdown, Christopher, we'll miss him, won't we? We will. I mean, I'd known Paddy Ashdown for about, sort of, I suppose, about 25 years. Uh, I always wanted to know what he had to say. Uh, he's very honest in many ways of with other politicians weren't. In some ways, he wasn't a politician. But he go on the Today programme and, and he knew that if he said something, people will stop and listen to what he had to say, especially over places like Bosnia. And he didn't suffer fools gladly, did he? Including me. We were sitting in his, <laughs> we were sitting in his garden one day in, in Somerset. We were near, near neighbours. And he was saying about Northern Ireland, it was a generational thing and it may be two, three generations before you got that sorted out. And I said that was really, really frightening. And he said, well, it is frightening. He said, I think there will be more for example, barriers up between the sectarian sides uh, than there are now. And I said, that was quite depressing. He said, it's not depressing. It's the fact that we're getting on. And all the time he knew it was possible to do something that bit extra. And that distinguished him from a lot of other people. Honest man, worth listening to. We'll be missed. And that all we have time for this week. Have you got an opinion or on today's topics? Tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast so you can never miss an episode. Just search for BFBS SITREP. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. I'll speak to you at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now.